we get started here with the sermon this morning, I want to mention to you that you who have little children that may be visiting with us, and they start making noise, and it freaks you out because you're worried that everybody's listening, do not be worried about that. The sound of children is, is a right and good sound in the church, and when that sound's not there, there's something wrong with the church. Of course, don't let it get going overboard, but if you have children that are making sounds in here, don't think that anybody's going to be looking at you for that. Can a Christian be a socialist? Our text this morning is Acts chapter 2. Once again, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you would lead us and guide us, show us the truth of your word, that we might hear it and that we might do it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was wearing a black suit and was finishing my cappuccino when I decided to toss my cup into the trash like a basketball. The cup bounced off the rim and splashed all over my suit in a big way because the suit was black. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things, and when things go wrong, there are unintended consequences. And so it is with pressing economic and political systems into the Christian faith. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things, and when things go wrong, there are unintended consequences. And so this morning, let's consider carefully the concept of biblical socialism. Biblical socialism. First of all, we will see that biblical socialism is orthodox. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. Now remember the context here. This is the day of Pentecost. It's occurred. Thousands have been converted this little group of 120 has now become a church of thousands of people, and the church is forming, and here's what they are like, we see in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, what did they do here? It says they devoted themselves. Now, the Greek verb there is proskatario, proskatario. They proskatarioed themselves. This means they persisted in, they persevered in, they continued steadfast in. What did they devote themselves to? Well, first of all, you'll notice here, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what might that be? Well, the content of it is this. The scriptures are true and prophesy the Messiah as the son of David, who is the Son of God in the flesh, who lived and died and rose from the dead and is calling the nations to obedience. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Next we notice that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, and the Greek word there is one you're likely familiar with. It's koinonia. It means community. They loved in and participated in the community of faith. They loved the body of Christ. They loved the church. The next thing they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. This was communion, the sacrament, the Eucharist, partaking of the body and blood of Christ in peace with one another. They devoted themselves to the sacrament. And what would that mean? Well, we know that there's basically two aspects of it. We have the vertical element and we have the horizontal element of communion. And it's about peace. We have peace with God at this table because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He invites us to the table in peace and because we have peace with Christ, we have peace with one another. We should be striving for peace 
with one another. The early church here devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And finally, they devoted themselves to the prayers. They were devoted to prayer. They were a praying people. Now, kids, listen up. Many of you out here, teenagers, some of you in middle school, some of you in high school, some of you getting ready to graduate and go off into the world to go into college. You're going to meet people that are going to tell you they're Christians and they're also socialists or communists. You need to be watching not what they say, but watch what they do. If you want to tout Christian socialism, you should be fervent about orthodoxy. You should be fervent about the church. You should be fervent about the sacraments. You should be fervent about prayer, not spending your time in jealous rants and endless protest against the system. So we see that biblical socialism is orthodox. The next thing we see is biblical socialism is faithful. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In the Greek here it says, Agenita de passe tsuke phabas. Agenita de, and there was, or they were, Coming, something was coming. Passe means all or every. There was coming upon every. Suke is soul, and phobos, as we've seen before, is the root word for phobia, fear. So literally, then there was coming upon every soul fear. Not slavish fear, but fear of awe. Fear of respect. Fear at the mystery, mystery and power of God. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of all understanding. And the fear is a beginning of faith. And a faithful community is filled with power, with spiritual power. We see here that there's spiritual power in the community of faith. Wonders and signs are being done. There is an interconnection with the faithfulness and God-fearing community and mighty works. A faithful church produces mighty works. So we see that biblical socialism is faithful. Now we'll see that biblical socialism is voluntary. It is voluntary. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All who believed were together. This had to have been a very peculiar moment in redemptive history. And when you're looking at things that occur, particularly in the narratives of the New Testament, you need to be careful. You need to be careful on saying this is what we need to do exactly like this all the time. A lot of these events that you see in the book of Acts and the Gospels are peculiar events. Peculiar events, landmarks, as it were, in redemptive history. Many of these Christians must have been Pentecost pilgrims who stayed over in Jerusalem, as we saw last week. You've got all these Jews coming from faraway lands from where they've been exiled from. You see that they've come from faraway lands, and they come to the Passover feast, and they stayed the 50 days over to Pentecost. Many of these people probably had great resources, as we see, like a man like Joseph of Arimathea. They had land inheritances, And some of them had tombs like Joseph of Arimathea. They want to be laid to rest in the promised land on the Mount of Olives. And so we see that there's all these people from faraway lands in Jerusalem. They stayed over for Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost arrived and the kingdom had broken in and the Holy Spirit had been poured out, they stayed. Wouldn't you? 
Imagine if you went to a pilgrim feast and you're looking forward to the coming of Messiah and the Spirit of God is poured out and the kingdom breaks in. Nothing else matters and you would have stayed there too. So they stayed in Jerusalem and the situation is not sustainable long term. It's not sustainable long term. Jerusalem's a small city and all these people, perhaps at this time, as many as 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem, they've come into town, they can't get jobs there, this is not sustainable long term, and it's not sustainable kingdom-wise. The kingdom's got to break out. It's got to go forth from Jerusalem to Judea, to Galilee, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's not practical long term, but God allows things. And God causes peculiar things to happen for peculiar periods of time. It's a time for the church to pool up, to grow, a time for the church to mature and to prepare for the next phase, and it will come to an end in the providence of God. In a fairly short period of time, months, maybe a year, we come to Acts chapter 8, and we have the stoning of Stephen, and what do we see there? In verse 1 of Acts chapter 8, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so a time would come to an end, and God would move the people out, cause the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Now I want to mention something else here. A lot of times I think commentators miss this. This is also an apocalyptic event. It's end times, eschatological as it were. You gotta remember here that the apostles are teaching these people and that this early church is all Jewish and these are people that are anticipating that soon the old covenant is going to come to an end. Jesus said that this temple is coming down. So they know the old covenant's passing away. They know the new covenant is breaking in. And here you've got people with land inheritances. The old covenant was about tribes and clans and land inheritances. The old kingdom was about this geographical place in the Middle East called Israel. But that's coming to an end. I think these people know it. It's time to divest of the old covenant. It's time to gather the resources in from these land inheritances. It's time to prepare the way for the powerful arrival of the kingdom and it's going out to the ends of the earth. Now they shared all things in common. Kids, listen up. There's a lot of cultural trends going on today where there's enforcement from the government taking larger shares of what you do and then redistributing it. And everybody acts like this is a new thing, but it's been tried many times before. Notice what happened here. They shared all things in common. How so? They voluntarily sold possessions and distributed them. How do we know this is voluntary? Because a couple chapters later, we've got the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This husband and wife sold a piece of land, and then they gave it over to the church, saying that, this was all that they'd gotten from the sale, but they held back a proportion of that. They lied. They lied in the presence of the apostles. They lied before the people of God. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them dead. It says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now here's the part I want to draw to your attention here. Verse 4, 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So here, the people of God would sell off a piece of land. They would come and they would give it over to the church, but they gave over what they wanted. They held back what they wanted. It was voluntary. Notice what they did not do. They did not work in work-owned enterprises and have their needs taken care of by a central committee. They voluntarily gave, and they gave generously. So we see that biblical socialism is voluntary. Next, we're going to see that biblical socialism is content. It is content. Going on to verse 46 to verse 47 in the first part, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Christians were content. They were fastidious and disciplined in going to church. They went daily. Now, here's how the early church would have worked at this point. Thousands of people have converted. And so they're coming into the temple. And around the main court of the temple, in the middle of that's the actual temple building itself. There's this big courtyard. And there's this, this covered portico, this colonnaded portico. It's called Solomon's Portico. And this is where rabbis would meet with their students. But the apostles are meeting with the church, and they're gathering together. They're worshiping day by day. They're devoting themselves to these things. They're fastidious and disciplined in going to church. I want to say this, friends. Show me a modern, hardcore, socialist Christian who is orthodox in theology and serious about going to church, and I'll start taking them seriously. They were content and thankful to receive their daily bread with glad. In the Greek, that's wildly joyful, wildly joyful and sincere hearts. They were content and did not jealously complain and demand more and say, why does that person have more than me? I should get what they have. They were content to give of their own resources and not demand the redistribution of others' resources. They were so contented, the outsiders saw and approved. Friends, may we be like that. May we be the type of church when people on the outside, people over here maybe that look down this little, this little hillside here and they don't go to church and they're not Christians, but they see what we do and they're like, I want to be part of that. Those people are good people. They do what's good and right. Those on the outside are looking at this early church and they're having favor with all the people. They were so contented that outsiders saw and approved. Now, you know, in the summer of 2020, we got these people gathering together on streets in Portland and Seattle. I saw some of them claiming to be Christians, protesting against injustice, burning Bibles. Saw them going down streets, and I don't know what it is about protests, but they're always drawn to Starbucks. That's always the place to get the man. Go break the windows at Starbucks! burning buildings, stealing belongings. And when you look at the outside from Black Lives Matter or Antifa, do you see them having the favor of all the people? The early church did. The early church did. May we have the favor of all those around us. So biblical socialism is content, and biblical socialism is productive. 
Going on to the second part of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church grew. The church grew. Christians were productive for the kingdom that's come now, but focused on an actual final personal judgment. These people had no problem believing and proclaiming the virgin-born divine Son of God who died for our sin, rose from the dead on the third day, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. They had no problem believing and proclaiming that this Jesus, fully God and fully man, is coming in judgment on the last day, and that is the telos. That is how the world ends. Now, I believe that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out his spirit upon the people of God. And as we progress through this age, there's going to be hills and valleys There's going to be peaks of glory and there's going to be times of persecution, but it is pressing on to its finish in glorious fashion. At the end of the day, at the end of this age, the word of God will cover the world like the water covers the sea. Jesus will receive his people and then he will glorify us. This age ends in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ coming at the final judgment and the final resurrection not a worldly utopia where we strive to get the man off his throne and to create some utopia of the proletariat. They had no problem submitting to God-established ecclesiastical hierarchical authority, not the state and the church, not the state, grew and grew. I got a question for you. Show me one modern socialist country where government isn't growing and the church is shrinking. Show me one modern communist country where the government isn't growing and the church is shrinking. So I say again to you kids in particular, listen to what people, or watch what they do. Don't just listen to what they say. And when you see systems that are destructive to the body of Christ, you go in the opposite direction. All right, what are some conclusions that we can draw from our text this morning? The church should take care of the church. The church should take care of the church. We should be taking care of our own, not the state. And Christians should be generous. If you want to tout Christian socialism, you better do it the Bible's way. Charlie had a bachelor's degree in social justice from Skelton International University, a small private liberal arts college. She was frustrated when she couldn't find a job in social justice. And two years after graduation, she was making minimum wage as a barista at Jabba's Jabba Hut. Looking at her parents, and in particular her father, an exceptionally successful research engineer, it just didn't seem right that he should be so prosperous and be able to send her an extra $2,000 a month to make ends meet. She drifted into democratic socialist and finally communist circles where leaders who never darken the door of a church like to propound that Jesus and the 12 apostles were the founders of socialism. Well, as we've learned this morning, the early church engaged in some form of communal living that defies our modern political and economic categories. But one thing is certain. If you're going to use the Bible as backup, you better be more than just empty talk. You better have real faith and have real Christian action. And as we've looked at Acts chapter 2 this morning, we've pondered biblical socialism. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. Make us wise according to your word. Give us wisdom from above that we might be able to discern truth and evil in our age. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.